New writing. New North. writing. New North. writing. North. New writing. You're North. listening to a podcast by New Writing North. North. This episode of the New Writing North podcast was recorded at Durham Book Festival 2018. In this episode, Booker Prize winning author Pat Barker introduces her new book, The Silence of the Girls, which reimagines one of the most famous conflicts in literature, the Trojan War. Pat Barker is in conversation with Dr. Anne Whitehead from Newcastle University. I'm just going to do a very brief reading to begin with. First of all, thank you all for coming. I don't know about the rest of you, but whenever I see a quote at the beginning of a book, I skip it and start reading the book. So I'm going to start by reading the quote at the beginning of The Silence (laughs) of the Girls, because actually, I do think it quite matters. Uh, It's uh, The Human Stain by Philip Roth, and the situation is that a professor of classics is greeting his uh, first class of the new academic year. And he's a rather pugnacious type of character. You know how European literature begins, he'd asked, after having taken the role at the first class meeting. With a quarrel. All of European literature springs from a fight. And then he picked up his copy of the Iliad and read to the class the opening lines. Divine muse, sing of the ruinous wrath of Achilles. Begin where they first quarrelled, Agamemnon, the king of men, and great Achilles. And what are they quarrelling about, these two violent, mighty souls? It's as basic as a barroom brawl. They're quarrelling over a woman. A girl, really. A girl stolen from her father. A girl abducted in a war. And uh, these two violent, mighty souls uh, go in for some very long, eloquent speeches in the first book of the Iliad. And the two girls, because there are two, not one, uh, say absolutely nothing from beginning to end. So I thought, no, Philip Roth, uh, if you're a man, all of European literature begins with a fight. If you're a woman, it begins with a silence. And I wanted to fill in that silence. And one of the girls is called Briseis, and when you finally get to the novel, uh, she is the one who is speaking. Great Achilles, brilliant Achilles, shining Achilles, godlike Achilles. How the epithets pile up. We never called him any of those things. We called him the butcher. Swift-footed Achilles. Now, there's an interesting one. More than anything else, more than brilliance, more than greatness, his speed defined him. There's a story that he once chased the god Apollo all over the plains of Troy. Cornered at last, Apollo is supposed to have said, you can't kill me, I'm immortal. Ah, yes, Achilles replied. But we both know, if you weren't immortal, you'd be dead. (laughs) Nobody was ever allowed the last word, not even a god. I heard him before I saw him, his battle cry ringing round the walls of Lenessus. 
We women, children too, of course, had been told to go to the citadel, taking a change of clothes and as much food and drink as we could carry. Like all respectable married women, I rarely left my house, though admittedly in my case the house was a palace. So to be walking down the street in broad daylight felt like a holiday, almost. Under the laughter and cheering and shouted jokes, I think we were all afraid. I know I was. We all knew the men were being pushed back. The fighting that had once been on the beach and round the harbour was now directly under the gates. We could hear shouts, cries, the clash of swords on shields. And we knew what awaited us if the city fell. And yet the danger didn't feel real, not to me at any rate, and I doubt if the others were only closer to grasping it. How was it possible for these high walls that had protected us all our lives to fall? Down all the narrow lanes of the city, small groups of women carrying babies or holding children by the hand were converging on the main square. Fierce sunlight, a scouring wind, and the citadel's black shadow reaching out to take us in. Blinded for a moment, I stumbled, moving from bright light into the dark. The common women and slaves were herded together into the basement, while members of royal and aristocratic families occupied the top floor. All the way up the twisting staircase we went, barely able to get a foothold on the narrow steps, round and round and round, until at last we came out, abruptly, into a big bare room. Arrows of light from the slit windows lay at intervals across the floor, leaving the corners of the room in shadow. Slowly we looked around, selecting places to sit and spread our belongings and start trying to create some semblance of a home. At first, it felt cool, but then as the sun rose higher, it became hot and stuffy, airless. Within a few hours, the smells of sweaty bodies, of milk, baby shit and menstrual blood had become almost unbearable. Babies and toddlers grew fetchful in the heat. Mothers laid the youngest children on sheets and fanned them, while their older brothers and sisters ran around, overexcited, not really understanding what was going on. A couple of boys, 10 or 11 years old, too young to fight, occupied the top of the stairs and pretended to drive back the invaders. The women kept looking at each other, dry-mouthed, not talking much, as outside the shouts and cries grew louder and a great hammering on the gates began. Again and again the battle cry rang out, as inhuman as the howling of a wolf. For once, women with sons envied those with daughters, because girls would be allowed to live. Boys, if anywhere near fighting age, were routinely slaughtered. Even pregnant women were sometimes killed, speared through the belly on the off chance their child would be a boy. I noticed Ismini, who was four months pregnant with my husband's child, pressing her hands hard into her stomach, trying to convince herself the pregnancy didn't show. In the past few days, I'd often seen her looking at me, Ismini, who'd once been so careful never to meet my eyes. And her expression had said more clearly than any words, 
It's your turn now. Let's see how you like it. It hurt, that brash, unblinking stare. I came from a family where slaves were treated kindly, and when my father gave me in marriage to Minas, the king, I carried on the tradition in my own home. I'd been kind to Ismini, or I thought I had, but perhaps no kindness was possible between owner and slave, only varying degrees of brutality. I looked across the room at Ismini and thought, yes, you're right, my turn now. Nobody was talking of defeat, though we all expected it. Oh, except for one old woman, my husband's great-aunt, who insisted the falling back to the gate was a mere tactical ploy. Minus was just playing them along, she said, leading them blindfolded into a trap. We were going to win, chase the marauding Greeks into the sea, and I think perhaps some of the younger women believed her. But then that war cry came again and again, each time closer. And we all knew who it was, though nobody said his name. So thank you for, um, for a lovely uh, reading to start us off there. And um, so I just want to say, so this is um, the fourth in conversation I've had the pleasure of doing with Pat. And we've been kind of gradually working back over the writing, so it's very nice to yeah. come right <laughs> up to date today and, um, and speak to you about the work that you are doing now. Um, and I'm sure Pat needs little um, introduction to you here in Durham. Um, but just really to, to kind of introduce um, the novel... Um, in a sense that Pat is known, I think, for writing that deals um, in a very uncompromising but also very compassionate way um, with these questions of trauma, gender, violence, conflict, survival. Um, so in The Silence of the Girls, she's revisiting the Iliad, um, this earliest representation of war in the Western canon. And I think... You know, again, kind of thinking, picking up all of those questions um, and really, I think, calling our attention to how little really changes when war, masculinity um, are at stake, including that voicelessness of the women um, mm. that you've, you've mentioned already. And I think after I read it, um, I, just, I had quite a visceral response to it. You know, I kind of put it down. And it almost felt, if, if it can be in a good way, that I'd been kind of thumped in the stomach. Um, <laughs> and, and I think, for me, that was a sort of uh, a sign that the contemporary novel can still... Um, pack its punch, really, that in these times that we're living in, um, which are, you know, uh, very much on the agenda, um, contemporary abuses of male power, and what happens when women speak, and whether, you know, how you speak, whether women are heard uh, when they do speak. Um, and it seemed to me to be, you know, very powerfully reflecting on, on these very urgent uh, questions at the moment. So I wanted to start by just, it's quite a big starter, um, but just sort of thinking about um, the ways in which in contemporary fiction there is a lot of novelists independently of each other um, turning to the classical world uh, for inspiration 
And um, and so there just seemed to be something in the classics now that is somehow speaking to um, contem- contemporary events. So just, to, yeah, if you have any reflections on that as to why well, it's, uh, that might it's, be the case. I'm not sure I know what the answer is. Uh, uh, last week I was at the Manchester Festival with Camilla Shamsi, whose book, uh, Home Fire, uh, which is a contemporary retelling of the story of Antigone, uh, recently won the uh, the Women's Prize. And she said, do you know why this is happening? And uh, <laughs> I said, no, I don't. And then we, we tossed ideas around. And my, my idea, really, is to compare it with the individual life. Because when, pe- when people are drawing to the end of their lives in extreme old age, they very frequently... Uh, return to the beginning, their memories of their childhood and early youth are actually more vivid, probably, than what happened in the last two or three days. And they seem to focus on them as a way of, you know, squaring the circle, pulling the threads through, making sense of your life in the, what, you know, maybe the last few years or even months. So that's one thing. And the other uh, was, you know, I was quite deeply involved with, was at the end of the 20th century, there was undoubtedly uh, a a tendency to go back to the early years of that century, Mm -hmm. and particularly to the First World War, uh, as if in coming to the end of this incredibly violent century that we'd all lived through, uh, we needed to go right back to the beginning and almost ask, ask, at what point did we get knocked off the path of progress? What accounts for what happened in that century? And there was also a desire to memorialise uh, the young men who had died, the people who should have come with us through that century and didn't come with us because they, di- they died in their teens and 20s. So, um, what those two things have in common is returning to the beginning because out of an awareness that we are coming to the end. Mm. So, here we are, these independent writers, going right back to the first, uh, really the first texts that our civilization produced, right back to the beginning. And are we doing it because there's a sense that we, like the old people and like the people memorizing, memorializing the First World War, that we are coming to the end of something? Mm-hmm. And if so, what are we coming to the end of? <laughs> Which is, um, it, it doesn't need to be, I mean, via Brexit, of course, we are coming to the end of a phase in our relationship with mainland Europe, but I don't think we're going back to the Iliad because of that. Uh, I think people are just terminally bored with it. Uh, (laughs) It's a great example of the fact that you can be fully aware of the significance of something and bored rigid at the same time. Uh, And I think we're in danger of getting to that point uh, with gender as well. Uh, in fact, what uh, uh, my agent said, you know, she's so sick of Brexit, she's so sick of gen- gender, that she runs them together and calls it Brenda and says, <laughs> let's not talk about Brenda. <laughs> 
Anyway, so what are we coming to the end of? Well, if you want to be optimistic, uh, the, the, the change in mood between, uh, in, in what's acceptable between men and women is, is coming to the end of a pattern of male dominance and male sexual exploitation of women. It may be that. Uh, or it may be we're coming to the end of a particular kind of narrative, even mm -hmm. the end of a literary civilization. Mm. Um, but uh, I don't know. What do you think? Because I mean, I'm going around recruiting ideas. Because yeah. I mean, it is extraordinary how many writers have gone back to the beginning. Yeah. yeah. All independently of each other. I, I think I was struck just listening to your answer. Um, just thinking about the 20th century and then the 21st century novel, and then just sort of thinking about, you know, you had all of that kind of looking back towards the end of the 20th century and kind of where are we yeah. now? And then you got, uh, you know, so I work in contemporary fiction, so there was a lot of sort of, um, oh, so a, a sense of newness and we're in this new place. And, yes. uh, you know, what's the 21st century novel going to look like? Um, but actually, almost now, it's sort of feeling like we're at the end of a thing. You know, and actually, it might be the end of a novel um, yes, yeah. in some ways. You know, is it a beginning or an ending? Kind of struck mm. me when you were talking there. Um, uh, but we see one, one of the things that, you know, lots of unexpectedly cheerful things happened during, during the, going back to the Iliad. And one was that, uh, uh, does it really matter if the novel dies? Yeah. Uh, because what, what you learn is that the, the human appetite for stories yeah. and evocation of place and experiment with language and uh, probing character is there. And it's not dependent on the novel. Yeah. It was there in epic poetry two and a half to three thousand years or even longer than that back mm -hmm. in time. Because uh, there's no doubt that, you know, uh, uh, if, you, if you compare Achilles as a character... Uh, with the, uh, the, you know, the hero of a thousand and one modern novels. Mm. You'd take Achilles every time, wouldn't you? Mm. He's far more powerful, far mm -hmm. more complex, far more charismatic. And yet there he is right at the beginning. Yeah. And he's reflecting on his own values. At one point, uh, you know, he's lived all his life for glory, like a typical Bronze Age warrior. And he just, says, he just says, suddenly, nothing is worth my life. Mm. I, I'm not interested in going for glory anymore. I want to live. And in doing so, of course, he's not just questioning his own values. He's questioning the values of the epic. Mm. So it is a very self-aware uh, thing that is going on in the Iliad. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So maybe just disagree, like taking the thinking about story rather than novel. Um, yes, you know, yeah. Sort of so, thinking about narrative. It's, yeah. it's the, it's the tribe around the fire uh, outside the cave telling yeah. stories. And we are always going to do that yeah. as long as we are identifiable as human beings. But yeah. we're not necessarily going to be reading novels in book form. Yeah. I don't think we're going to be reading them on Kindles, Kindle either, because if anything, uh, the hardback book is winning over the Kindle at the moment. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so um, I just want to kind of move uh, to kind of continue the, the conversation about the novel, but move to a slightly different place. So um, the 
the conversation around the novel has been very much that you know that it is um, from the perspective of Briseis and mm. uh, you know kind of putting the woman's voice um, in. And I want to talk, come back to that um, and talk about that more mobile narrative perspective and where, you know, where that isn't the focus um, in a little while. But um, so I just wanted to think about that first and think, well, for you, would you, would you see or describe the novel as a feminist novel? Would you be comfortable with that term? Would you think it is? You know, what would be your response to... I would say that it is neither more nor less a feminist novel than Regeneration is. Yeah. I don't think it's more feminist because it's focused on the experience of women. Yeah. Um, I think the most urgent thing for feminists, really, is actually to focus in some ways mm. on the, the experience of men. I mean, um, having watched avidly the Brett Kavanaugh-Ford yeah. um, clash in his job interview... Uh, you know, one of the criticisms, quite validly, was that he made it be about himself. But one of my reactions to that was it needs to be about him. We need to talk about Brett. Mm. We need to talk about how this incredibly privileged individual with mm. this amazing education turned into, into that. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, so... Um... Um, and so I wonder if you could just say a little bit, just, just sticking with Briseis for now, um, about how you went about developing her character, her voice from the, from the source, from the Iliad, you know, where she's kind of um, there, but not yeah, there she, in a way. She's, you know, she's um, the bone in the dogfight, as she says herself at one point in my novel. Uh, you know, everything is her fault, just like the bone causes the dogfight because uh, she is the reason that Agamemnon Achilles fall out and in so doing bring the Greek core uh, war effort to the verge of defeat. Um, there's very, very little in the Iliad about Briseis or about any of the other women. Uh, there's more about horses, as somebody said to me. You know, a lot more <laughs> about horses in the Iliad than there, are, there is about women. Partly, I don't, th I don't think Homer was misogynist at all from, uh, from what I can make out. Uh, but I think epic poetry celebrates the great deeds of heroes. And in that sense, the, the form is hostile to the voices of women. Um, one, you know, th there is an implication that she fell in love with Achilles, and I've had conversations with men about this, and they do seem to be rather easily thinking that that might be the case. Uh, it's almost as if, well, here he is, the most strongest, the, the bravest, the most beautiful man of his generation. Why wouldn't you be in love with him? And I, I would think, well, actually, he killed my entire family, and he burnt my house down. And that is a very good reason for thinking yuck at the sight of him. I don't, I don't think she was in love with him. Okay. Um. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, just thinking, because all of your novels um, uh, have this um, mobile kind of narrative mm. viewpoint. And... And actually, you know, I, I was very struck, you know, I was sort of looking through reviews, and if I, if I hadn't read the novel, I think I would have 
just got the sense it was first person and you know from yes. uh, yeah. Brasseis's point of view and and that you you kind of suddenly gone from this this more mobile yeah. narrative perspective and it, it kind of takes us back a bit to what you were saying about perhaps part of the work that feminine feminism needs to do now is actually you know look kind of engage with with the Achilles and engage yeah, with yeah. men um, and actually one of the most moving um, uh, passages in the novel for me was was from Achilles's perspective um, and kind of looking more at his point of view um, so yeah so I just wondered if you could say something about the importance for you as a writer of that mobile narrative perspective rather than the first person yes, um, yeah. and then perhaps reflecting on the importance for this novel of that as well um, um, well, I mean, initially, of course, having made such a fuss uh, at the beginning about the, the absence of the voices of girls, Briseis had to be first person at that point. Yeah. And my original aim was to uh, take it all the way through as her first okay. person voice. But I, I realised early on that for purely practical reasons, I couldn't do that. Uh, because the, you know, there are just key episodes in the yeah. plot that she cannot possibly witness. And you lose drama, of course, if she's always being told what happened by somebody mm. else. It has to be there on the stage if you're going to grab the audience. And uh, at that point, Achilles came in, uh, Patroclus first and then Achilles, and the thing about Achilles, of course, is I do believe, and it's, I think it's there in Homer, that he was suffering from a form of post-traumatic stress disorder mm -hmm. after Patroclus's death. He goes off on this great killing spree. There's an American psychiatrist called Jonathan Shea uh, who, uh, who most of his professional life was spent dealing with men who'd suffered traumatic stress in the Vietnam War. And he came to understand that in terms of the Iliad and the character of Achilles, whose personality mm. and values change radically after the death of Patroclus. And he goes out on, off on a killing spree uh, in revenge for the loss of his friend. Well, another person who did that was called Siegfried Sassoon. His friend David died, and after David's death, he went out into no man's land every single night looking for Germans to kill. Mm. And there were many times when I was writing about Achilles that I thought I was back in Craig Lockhart. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I, that, I mean, that, that interests me then, that you had had the intention, actually, of it being first person throughout, and yes. it was a kind of uh, almost a, you know that practical, how can I yes, it was the get pra certain scenes practical in? How, how, how can I actually tell the story? Because, yeah. I mean, Achilles is right at the centre of the story. Yeah. As Briseis says at the end, it's his anger, his grief, his story. Yeah. And she tried to make it be her story, just as I tried to make it be her story. Yeah. And she failed, and I failed too. Hmm. It is, as you know, Singo divine muse, the ruinous wrath of Achilles. That is the only story. Mm. And I think it's a mistake to think that merely by focusing on a woman, you can change the nature of a story. Mm -hmm. I mean, and I do think some writers believe that there is a story called Ophelia, Princess of Denmark. Well, actually, there isn't. Uh, you can tell Hamlet's story from the point of view of uh, Ophelia. 
but it remains Hamlet's story because mm. that is the only story there is. So it, it's not so. It's kind of not so much about uh, getting the woman's story as as perhaps registering the voicelessness. Yes, um, yes, and yeah, the repeated yes, voicelessness. Yes. I mean, having said that, there was uh, something I read about uh, somebody who had done a performance. Um, of uh, Hamlet focusing on Ophelia in Broadmoor. And uh, he has a the, you know, the bit where Hamlet is walking up and down being apparently or actually mad. And Ophelia says, oh, what a noble mind is hero throne. And they have it doing, they had her doing that in the Broadmoor version. Only when she says that, she's looking in a mirror. Mm. Yeah, and she is the noble mind, the glass mm. of fashion and the mould of form, mm. not Hamlet. Mm. I don't know how that... Well, apparently it worked in Broadmoor. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I just want to... I hadn't thought of the Jonathan Shea co um, connection. I do, you know, I kind of... It's do called know Achilles in Vietnam, yes. Yeah, 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 I do know that work. And so that idea of um, Achilles and post-traumatic stress disorder... And, you know, but when I was reading that Achilles-Patroclus relationship did yeah. very much remind me of regeneration and, and the ways in which there you're exploring that kind of, um, uh, that intimacy between men in war that, you know, that, mm. that you do get in that Achilles-Patroclus pairing. Um, and you, was, you, you mentioned in passing that Patroclus came before Achilles, uh, well, I mean, Patroclus is the bridge between the, the first third of the book and the last third of the book. Yeah. Because uh, every book has a different trajectory while you're writing it. And the story of this book was very much that I knew Briseis and her voice worked. I knew the bit where Priam comes to see Achilles works. I mean, why wouldn't it work? It's one of the great uh, stories in world literature. Mm. And it was like one of these, you know, sponge cakes that goes wrong. <laughs> Both sides were nice and firm and juicy, and there was just this cavern in the middle where mm. the whole thing sank. And um, I, got, I got across that, really, by developing the ca character of Patroclus. Mm. I have heard Patroclus described as a plot device, that his sole function is to be the reason why Achilles goes back to war. And I, I don't agree at all. Mm. I think... Uh, Quite the reverse, I think Patroclus is the moral heart of the Iliad. Mm. He is, about, apart from, you know, Priam and Hector, but on the Greek side, he is the only man with any integrity or compassion yeah. on the Greek side. And I think, for, I think Homer saw him like that. I think he, he was seen as the good man, mm. the, the man whom uh, other men should emulate, if you like. Mm. And uh, at his Patroclus' funeral games, uh, Agamemnon actually calls him the best of the Greeks. And Achilles has been frothing at the mouth all this time. He wants to be the best of the Greeks. And he simply nods, he acquiesces that Patroclus actually was the best of the Greeks. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and then you were, I think you were wanting to ask about the nature of the relationship between Patrick yeah, and Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of, it reminded me of, you know, earlier ones in Regeneration as well, you know. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I, I, I... You know, the great thing about Patroclus and Achilles is were they, were, were they lovers? And Agamemnon and Odysseus 
uh, can't quite leave this thing alone. Mm. They, you know, they, they think they are. And uh, I think they probably either are or were. Uh, I don't think people labelled themselves in that way. I don't go into the mm. sexual side. And it's not because I, I have any inhibitions about doing gay sex, as those of you who remember <laughs> Billy Pryor's exploits. Indeed. Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that gets very explicit. But I wanted to focus on something else in the relationship between Achilles and Patroclus, because it's a very multi-layered relationship. The first thing is that they were foster brothers. Uh, Patroclus accidentally killed a boy. Uh, when he was about 10, and he was sent into exile to the court of uh, Achilles' uh, father, uh, Peleus. So they grew up as foster children, both of them pretty miserable. Patroclus has lost everything, and Achilles has lost his mother. The sea nymph, Thetis, was just walked back into the sea and abandoned him. So there's that, and then they have been fighting together for nine years, uh, they have relied on each other to, uh, literally for their lives. They have trusted each other for nine years with their lives. And we forget in this largely non, you know, a society where only a very small number of people, tiny number of people now, ever have any experience of the armed forces. Uh, we forget what a very passionate relationship it is between comrades in arms. And, and I'm quite prepared to believe that they're also lovers. But there is something else going on. I think what, what happens, has happened between them under all these pressures is that there has been a kind of fusion of identity. And when Patroclus goes into war wearing Achilles' armour mm. in order to frighten the Trojans, uh, Achilles watches him from the stern of the ship and he watches himself, apparently, on the battlefield. It's identical to himself in every respect, although it's Patroclus. And at one point, something happens, and he finds himself inside the helmet, looking out of the eye holes of the helmet. And he has to, you know, he has to go and uh, lie down. But at that point, he, Patroclus becomes him, and he becomes Patroclus. So that when Patroclus dies, it's, the grief is so deep, mm. it's like an amputation. Mm. And, you know, Achilles may or may not survive it. And he tries to survive it, first of all, by killing an, an amazing number of people in revenge. And then when he finally kills Hector, who killed Patroclus, uh, he, that isn't enough. It's not enough to have killed Hector. He has to inflict these terrible indignities on Hector's body. And uh, the gods preserve Hector so that every time uh, Achilles does this, the body is restored. It's a young, beautiful uh, man in the prime of life again, no matter what he does. And when he looks in his mirror, he sees the injuries he's inflicted on Patroclus, uh, on Hector, on his own face. He is the one who has become hideous. And for me, that was uh, a way of dealing mm -hmm. uh, or examining the uselessness of revenge. Yeah. Uh, he simply cannot revenge himself because mm -hmm. nothing is enough. Yeah, 
Yeah, and it just it just escalates and escalates. Escalates, yes. Yeah. Until and it, he doesn't get himself out of it. It's the visit from Priam who asks for his son's body back, yeah. uh, which actually makes Achilles turn into a human being. He, he becomes yeah. a man, in fact, whereas before he's been half god, half beast. But and he part is, machine. Yeah, and, <laughs> yes, yeah, and he's not yeah. not a man. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think it's interesting. So it, I, I found when I was reading that that scene of the doubling um, of Achilles and Patroclus, you know, I found very, very powerful. And again, very reminiscent of that kind of idea of doubling in your other work. Um, but also that, that scene where Priam comes to Achilles. Um, again, it's just, I think that was, that was one of the, the moments in the novel I was thinking about where, you know, from that different perspective actually yes, it, it, yeah. it's a very powerful scene i think and there's a, there's a line of dialogue in it which is you know taken very closely from homer and which has therefore been produced all over the world priam kneels at achilles feet kisses his hands and says i do what no man on earth has ever done before i raise to the, my lips the hands of the man who killed my son mm. and that has been quoted in ireland it's been yeah. quoted in south africa wherever there is a need for reconciliation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, and I just wanted to... So we've talked about the, the medical in relation to the PTSD and trauma and Achilles. Um, there were, and I suppose just... There were scenes of medical care in war um, in the novel, and I think two things struck me, really. One was um, that... Uh, this is one of the things that the women are doing. Um, they, so, you know, they are tending the bodies of the wounded and the dying and the dead. Um, and, um, and the second thing, I was quite struck that, um, you know, so I, was, I suppose this is about that sense of, of whether for you there is more continuity in war or whether you see that modern warfare as quite distinct. So I was thinking, for example, of the detail you mention of the, the soil infecting the wound and gangrene, which, you know, seemed to me quite First World War in a way. Mm. Um, so, which then led me to that bigger thought of, you know, of, of whether um, that aspect of medical care and war felt felt very different to you or very... Uh, well, I mean, what, what, one of the things you notice is that uh, Homer doesn't have very many wounded men. Yes. Uh, and uh, it certainly doesn't have many severely wounded men. And it's true, of course, that a severe wound, that they'd, they'd be most unlikely to survive it. But, you know, reasoning from first principles, uh, the Trojan plain was a fertile agricultural plain. Mm. They're churning it up with their chariot wheels all the time. It's bisected by two rivers which flood their banks. Mm. So what you've got is a quagmire of very fertile agricultural land mm. getting into wounds. Yeah. That means gangrene. Okay. Uh, yeah. So I, I, I sort of supplied the, yeah. <laughs> the wounded men to, to Homer. Because, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, like a lot of uh, dealing with war uh, and, and in like war as presented by uh, war ministries or defence ministries throughout the world, you, on the one hand, you have the likely wounded saying, back home soon, mum, and uh, smiling at the cameras. And on the other, you have the glorious dead, and you don't have anybody in between. Mm. You don't have anybody who is terribly disfigured or with multiple amputations and sort of recruiting officer's nightmare. You just uh, 
lose those quietly. Mm. And they are not there in the Iliad either. Uh, th there is one scene which has lingered in my mind where uh, Briseis, with the laundry women who do double duty as uh, uh, morticians, are, lay are laying somebody out. And Achilles, it's a kinsman of Achilles. Achilles comes in to, you know, to make sure that everything is being done properly. And he's not meant to be there. It's taboo. It's, it's, he's breaking a taboo, because mm. this is women's work. And the washerwomen are his slaves. He owns them. They have no power. He has all the power in this situation. Mm. And they stand their ground, and they look at him over the corpse, and Achilles backs down. And I mm. thought that was, that was interesting. Now, that is the extent to which um, women were seen as the gatekeepers. Mm. Uh, birth was their business, and death was their business. Mm. And uh, even Achilles can't interfere yeah. with that. Yeah, backs off, yeah. Um, and I, I was just thinking, actually, as you were as you were speaking there about um, you know about that absence of the um, of the wounded body um, in in Homer, and I was thinking about all of that emphasis that you get in Homer on the arming, you know, the arming sequences, um, and so you get the men, you know, preparing to go into that yes, battle yeah, yes. that will give oh, them yes. the glory through death. And yes, yeah, yeah, and uh, and that's the, you know your previous point about. No, the nature of the warfare. Well, what they have, of course, is face-to-face -face combat, apart yeah. from arrows. But, I mean, a lot of it is face-to-face -face combat. And the extent to which Homer makes them exchange information about themselves. You know, mm. you can't kill anybody in Homer unless, until you've worked out who his great-grandfather was. <laughs> and on one occasion, two, two men uh, on opposite sides, a Trojan and a Greek, not only do they stand there, sort of swords raised, working out who each other's grandfathers were, uh, but horror of horrors, their grandfathers were friends, and they had entertained each other in each other's houses. They were guest friends. And that is... Uh, in. In the archaic world, that was such a strong bond that it's obviously then mm. impossible for the grandsons to kill each other. Mm. So they just agree that we will avoid each other on the battlefield. And off they go in opposite directions. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's it's a, a general thing. And one of the most remarkable things about the Iliad is the way in which every, every death, really... Uh, Nobody dies anonymously. Yeah. Nobody is just a name. Still less is anybody just a corpse. Uh, Homer tells you something mm. about them at the moment of their death. They're memorialised even as they're dying. Mm. And, uh, mm. and Briseis talks about, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the, the list of the dead, of the dead Trojans at Troy is a list of in intolerably nameless names, mm. which is exact phrase that Siegfried Sassoon used about the men in gate. Mm. Uh, and she gets away from that by talking to the men's mothers, which she does through the rest of her life, because mm. the women of Troy are scattered. She talks to them about their sons who died defending Troy. And the women don't talk about the young men who died. They talk about the babies. They talked about what their labour was like mm. and whether the child walked on time. 
One, one has a little boy who walks at the age of six months without ever having crawled and her back's broken going round with him. Another one doesn't talk because he's a twin and the dominant twin always talks for him. And uh, they remember things like that. That's the way they memorialise their sons. Mm. Mm. And that, that is a way of bringing the women's voices in. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and there's something very powerful there, isn't there, about, about anonymity and remembrance and memorialisation. And also, yeah, you know, and it, it, not just the women, but the mothers, I think, you know, yes. yeah. makes it very powerful, doesn't it? Um, so, yeah. Okay, so we've got about 15 minutes, so um, I would like to just open up the conversation and invite anyone who would like to, to put your hand up nice and high and then, and then we can we can um, we can take some questions for Pat um, from the floor Hello there. Um, you mentioned in an interview you did some years ago now that um, the historical novel is a backdoor into the present could you elaborate uh, the historical novel I'm just simply making the point that the questions we ask of history are the questions uh, dictated by our own preoccupations. You know, the, the questions people asked about the First World War 70 years ago are not the questions we would ask now and not the questions uh, that people will be asking 70 years in the future. Everything is based on the preoccupations of our own day. Um, I would say about the silence of the girls that things are slightly different there because uh, it's not a historical novel in the sense that the Trojan War probably never happened and certainly didn't happen in a form that's anything like uh, the Iliad says. So, you know, it never happened. These people never lived. It's a myth, not history. And with myth, you're allowed to do different things. Mm. With myth, you can, uh, you can introduce deliberate anachronisms, and I do. And that I want there to be places where the reader is absolutely jarred. You know, the, uh, uh, Achilles' men are, are drinking, and then they, they burst out into a rousing chorus of, why was he born so beautiful? You know, this isn't because I think Bronze Age warriors sang English <laughs> rugby songs. It's, it's meant to say, oh, no, perhaps it isn't then. Perhaps it's now. And even the, the, the song about Helen of Troy, which I won't quote because it's incredibly obscene, um, that is also an English rugby song. And uh, actually, some, some uh, undergraduates at Nottingham U Trent University were hauled over the coals recently for singing it. So it's uh, incredibly misogynist. And I, th I think, is there something as well about the ways in which, and I think you've spoken about this before in relation to First World War uh, novels, that, that that displacement almost enables you to address the contemporary Yes, issues, the, yes, yes. Like, it, it, with more force in a certain way than if you were writing it in a contemporary setting. Well, yes, because um, I, I, you know, I, I do think that when people are dealing with a historical period, preferably one which is you know, fairly remote, uh, they don't know what they think about it. Um, whereas if, if, you, if you talk about Brexit and Boris Johnson 
and Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn, everybody has, um, not, if not opinion, an opinion, they have a gut reaction. And the, it's the gut reaction that, that gets engaged when you talk about this on the nose, as it were. Mm. Whereas, you know, if you're dealing, for example, Hilary Mantle's trilogy, if you're dealing with, uh, all it, you know, Thomas Cromwell and, uh, you know, Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn, you don't have the same knee-jerk reactions to that. So you are prepared to look at it in an open-minded way. And in the process, whether you're aware of it initially or not, you're also looking at the present in a mm. more open-minded way, I think. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And, it's, and I think that goes back to what, yeah, to what you were saying about the, the, uns, the deliberate unsettlement that you're doing. Yes. With, you yeah. know, the, you've got the gods, but then you've got English rugby songs. And so where are we? Um, what's going yes. on? Yes, well, I mean, the gods yeah. are, are not there to any great extent. Mm. Achilles' mother is there. And Achilles' mother was a goddess. And it's a very important part of Achilles' character is that his mother was a goddess. And because he's not, mm. he is mortal. Uh, the children of the gods with uh, mortals were mortal. But he almost feels resentful that he's mortal. Mm. But also there's a more general point. Because if you think of all the really difficult men you've known in your lifetime... How many of them had goddesses for mothers? <laughs> <laughs> okay, there's a question here. So, yes, there. Mm. Um, you've talked about uh, the PTSD link with Achilles, and um, what I've, I've, I've loved your book, Regeneration, for a long time. Um, as a psychiatrist myself, I've got often got my junior doctors to read it. Um, <laughs> whether they wanted to or not, because I thought it was really a really good representation of trauma. But I suppose what I found, I wondered why there was less about the trauma to the women, and they, I think I think they seemed a lot of them seemed to be very kind of survived. That there was a numbness and dissociation initially, and then they kind of survived it. But I suppose. I, I suppose I, I couldn't quite work out why the la where the brokenness was so much, and the, and, and the PTSD for the women, and 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 the, the fallout for them. I just wondered. And I suppose that leads onto a slightly different question: is in that there was a mobile narrative, but I suppose I wondered whether whether there was more voices to be heard from women in this. Whether there were more voices of the women. To, uh, yeah, because there, yes. there was bryosis, but I, want, I, I kind of I suppose I, would, I was interested in you know, the voice of Thetis and the voice of Crisis and the voice of Helena. I suppose that, that, that they piqued my interest in other voices. Yes, yeah, I mean, the other, the other women are uh, not developed to anything like the same extent, and I think that's partly, partly that decision is uh, uh, the fact that she is first person. She's first person and also uh, f her, her first um, weeks, if perhaps a month or six weeks, she is, in a state of, she is in a state of shock. I mean, she's catatonic with shock. She's lost, lost everything. And the other women are rallying around her, which means that she doesn't see them very clearly. I think the one who her relationship develops with is Tech Messer. Um, 
who, no, who, who once again is a, uh, you know, a what they called a spear bride, but she's been captured by Ajax. All her family are dead. She's been there for several years, and she's got a, a child by Ajax whom she loves. So, I mean, she's a stage further on than Briseis, I think. And Briseis rather despises her because she thinks that Tecmessa has sold out. But, mm. of course, at the end... Uh, uh, Briseis is much closer to Tecmessa uh, than to any of the others, almost. And I think one of the, uh, the that image sticks with me very powerfully. Um, thinking about you know the representation of the women and the women's trauma in the novel, um, the, you know that where you say these women watch the men not like hawks but like mice. Yes, yeah. And yes. you know, and that that sort of seemed to say an awful lot. Yeah, um, that, uh, she survives by learning Achilles. Yeah. And uh, she says at one point that she knows everything about Achilles. Yeah. Uh, she knows every flicker of a changing expression. And he knows almost nothing about her. Yeah. For a long time, she is just a body in the bed, yeah. which is convenient to, to have, mm. especially since she's his prize of honour. So it's a high-status thing for him. Uh, but even when she goes into the sea and comes back smelling of salt, and therefore smelling like his mother, uh, with whom he has a tremendously conflicted relationship, uh, she still, he still doesn't see her as Briseis. Mm. He sees her as a woman who smells of the sea, like mm. his mother used to smell mm. when he was a small child. Mm. Mm. It's only very, very briefly, and right at the end, that he is aware of her as yeah. a human being rather than a body. So I think we've got a question right at the back. Yeah. <clears throat> it was interesting, your, uh, your mention at the beginning of um, uh, the many people who are writing uh, at the moment and how they're looking back to the beginning of the 20th century uh, when we were at the, the end of the 20th century with the wars and what were we looking back to, going back to the beginning of now, what was coming to an end. And I, I wondered whether it might be that at the end of the 20th century, we were looking back to the First World War. There were still people around who uh, could talk about it. But having been written about so much uh, in the Regeneration Trilogy and many others, uh, are we now finding that there's a need to look for a fresh way, uh, a surrogate for the centenary of the First World War? Because we've actually over-told that story in the last 20 years. Mm, well, I think this is going to go quiet for a while, certainly. Uh, um, I've never really bought into the idea that the First World War uh, is going to, that it's going to be remembered differently uh, after the death of the, of, the, of the very last survivors of the war. Because I think there, there is a sense in which the veterans of the First World War, and perhaps of all wars, I can't think at the moment, that the veterans represent the dead. Uh, and the thing about the dead is that they're young. They, it's like, you know, they shall not grow old as we that are left grow old. And it's for once that is just quite true. And I do think succeeding generations will go to the poetry of Wilfred Owen and Siegfried Sassoon and others, and they will be reading the words of men who are young as they themselves are young. You know, it's, uh, 
It's not about the veterans. It's about the men who died young, I think. And uh, I don't think that feeling is going to go away. Mm. And that, yeah, I mean, just thinking about the Iliad there, you know, that's, I mean, that's all about um, these men who, you know, the glory comes from dying at that. Yes, you know, that height of youth, mist, it? Yes, yes. You know, that's absolutely uh, fundamental. Mori, the old lie, yeah. as, uh, yeah, yeah. as Owen says. Okay. Um, well, I think on that note of endings, um, it's, uh, we're kind of out of time, so I'll draw it to a close and just ask you to, with me, thank Pat for what's been a really, you know, I think I found it fascinating, just a very thought-provoking um, uh, reflection on, on contemporary fiction, on war, on, um, uh, on our times, really, on gender as well. So, yeah, so if you'd like to join me with thanking Pat. You've been listening to the New Writing North podcast, recorded at Durham Book Festival 2018. Durham Book Festival is a Durham County Council event produced by New Writing North with support from Durham University and Arts Council England. New Writing New North. Writing New North. Writing North. New Writing You're North. listening to a podcast New by Writing New Writing North. North.